Welcome to the San Diego County Bar Association's Meet and Confer, a podcast for the San Diego legal community. We're your hosts, Renee Stackhouse and Jim Crosby. I'm Renee Stackhouse, a solo focusing on military defense and personal injury. I'm Jim Crosby. I have a solo civil litigation practice. And today we have special guests, Heather Rosing, Patty Hollenbeck, Heather Riley. Today our topic is Big Law. So here's the thing that I'm most excited about today is not just celebrating three women who I am incredibly uh, impressed with and I look up to highly, but the fact that there are three women in big law here to talk about how they got to big law and to instruct us. And as I was thinking about three women, I was thinking, oh, the San Diego County Bar Association has a diversity policy and we're supposed to make sure that our panels are diverse and we are... um, making sure to make sure that there's a lot of people involved from different genders and uh, ethnicities and ages and demographics and across the board. But then I thought about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's quote, when will there be enough women on the Supreme Court? And she said when there are nine. So I'm going to start off with three in this room, which I'm very excited about. Hi, Heather Rosing. Hi. Great to be here today. I work at Kleindens PC. We're about 70 attorneys with five offices across California and in Seattle. I'm one of the managing partners in a CFO role. My practice area is legal malpractice defense, uh, professional responsibility, and ethics. I do a lot of risk management work for attorneys, for judges, for other um, types of professionals. Patty. Well, I'm Patty Hollenbeck, and I work at Dwayne Morris, which is an international law firm. We have a lot of offices. I'd say we have over 25 offices. I'm here, obviously, in San Diego. I'm in the commercial litigation department. Technically, it's the trial department. And my specialty is general civil litigation uh, focused on franchise work, as well as consumer cases and a variety of other business work ranging from partnership disputes to real estate litigation. And I'm Heather Riley. Uh, I am at Allen Mackins. I'm a land use partner in the San Diego office. Allen Mackins is a real estate firm with five offices just in California. Um, my land use practice is generally focused on San Diego land use, but I also do uh, California Environmental Quality Act work, environmental work up and down the state. Okay, we have so many questions for you. But my first one is what got you into big law? Well, I went to law school in Chicago, and it was very, very cold. (laughs) And uh, I interviewed with uh, big law firms throughout California, primarily, and selected Kleindance PC, which at the time wasn't a big law firm. It was only about 12 attorneys. But I thought, wow, this is a great opportunity to get in on the ground floor. But I always thought maybe I'd do something else, uh, go to the US Attorney's Office. I wanted to do something litigation-oriented, but I didn't know exactly what. I fell in love with litigation at Kleindienst. I quickly developed my expertise in legal malpractice defense and the attendant ethics and risk management work. And it just kind of snowballed from there. I have some great colleagues. We built a great team. And I've been there now for 23 years. Wow. Patty, what about you? It's completely inadvertent. I started off at Higgs Fletcher. And I went there because there was a job opening. And I got to interview with Judy Haller, who's now in the 4th District Court of Appeal. She became my boss. That was a a wonderful time there. Then when it was time for me to leave there, I went to work at Buchanan Ingersoll with uh, Judge Karen Crawford before she was a judge. When we started, there were only three of us in that office. And then we built it to about 15 and made a decision as a group to move to another firm. So there are 42 lawyers in the San Diego office of Dwayne Morris, even though there are over 750 across the firm. So I don't think of it as being part of big law, even though we are, because our local presence is very family-like. It's very it's small enough to feel like you know everybody well. And I can wear my inflatable T-Rex costume, and <laughs> that's okay. Um. For me, the big law was pretty inadvertent, too. When I moved here from New York, I had a law degree, and I knew four attorneys at the U.S. Attorney's Office, and they weren't hiring. So I sent my resume to everyone. I was hired by a smaller law firm in North County called Gatsky, Dillon & Balance. They're the only ones that made me an offer, so I took it, and I started doing construction defect work for them. I despised every minute of it. It was not my personality. It was not my fit. I couldn't 
I couldn't do it for very long, and I don't think I would have stuck around in the law altogether. But their sequel lawyer announced he was leaving. And that night, the partner came to me and said, hey, we have a hearing tomorrow. Can you come with me? And then he didn't show up. So oh it was God. me on my own at an ex parte. I had read all the briefs. I had read all the paperwork by myself that night. And I ended up loving the environmental land use side of things. And when I started thinking about having a family, the firm I was at was wonderful, but the hours were terrible. And I knew I would never see my, I couldn't see my puppy. And so my husband and I sort of had a conversation and I decided I needed to move. And so Alan Mackins was looking for someone who could do what I did. So it worked out really great. I moved there in 2006. My first week there, I could not believe that there was no one in the office after 6 p.m. Like I would walk around the halls waiting to see people. and. I just started going home at a normal hour, which was much more conducive to having a family, and I've been there since. It's really interesting to hear you say that. It's kind of the antithesis of what I think of when I think big law. So I hope we'll touch on that in a little bit and hear about from both all of you about your work hours and that mm -hmm. dreaded billable hour that I hear about. Okay. I know that there's a huge audience out there who wants to know the answer to this question, and that is, what does it take to get hired at big law? Well, you know, to be clear about my firm, Kleindienst, and I think this is one of the reasons I was invited to be on the panel, we're not big law per se in the way that Dwayne Morris is. We're more mid-sized law, which is a slightly different thing. And, you know, there's... You're pretty big for San Diego. Pretty though. big for San Diego, 30-plus yeah. attorneys, yeah. Um, 70 again across all the offices. But um, so what does it take to be hired in mid-law? Yeah. <laughs> well, uh you know, I will tell you the market is changing quite a bit. Um, I'm seeing a lot more people going through recruiters, you know, younger and younger people, people who have less years in practice are now going through recruiters, which I think there's pros and cons of that. And I wouldn't necessarily recommend that a young person run out and hire a recruiter in order to go to a big law firm if that's your desire. Uh, the other way that we're doing a lot of hiring is, frankly, through personal connections. Um, probably, I would say, the last four or five people that I've hired, I've met through somebody. You know, somebody I met through the San Diego County Bar will call me and say, hey, I have a great candidate. And then I'll take a look at the resume. And because I have that personal reference, it means a lot more to me. I would say the most ineffectual hiring for us um, is just putting an ad out there and getting, you know, 100 resumes because it's really hard to sift through them. It's really, uh, you know, hard to understand who's best uh, for the position. If you're the candidate, here's the advice that I would give you. You need to go out and meet people and network the heck out of it. You need to join the SDCBA as well as the California Lawyers Association. And <laughs> I'm the president and Renee is one of our leaders. <laughs> Small, small plug, small plug. But you need to join these organizations mm -hmm. and you need to go to the events. You need to join the committees. Then you need to ask the attorneys who have been in practice if you can go to lunch with them. And then you need to ask them if they can introduce you to two other people. And, you know, you, Renee, you know, it's hypothetical because you don't want to do this, but you want to work at Dwayne Morris. And you go to lunch with me and I say, well, I'll introduce you to Patty Hollenbeck. And then you meet Patty and maybe Patty introduces you to the hiring committee. That is clearly and unequivocally the best way to get a job. Know people, network, get out there. Love it. Excellent. Any other words of advice? So at Allen Matkins, we're an AMLA 200 firm. So we're not as big as Dwayne Morris, but we're sort of probably a slight bit larger than somebody like Kleindienst. We get resumes, I can't even tell you how many a day, just get dumped on us. So last year, we actually hired someone in charge of what we call now our recruiting department. And they handle all of the regular recruiting that we've always done, but they're also in charge of our associate advancement. So they're making sure that our associates are integrated, that they're getting good work, that they're doing other stuff. So, but they, that gives them the opportunity to see it in the door and then going up the steps essentially. And our recruiting department, Christine McWilliams, is phenomenal. She's in our Orange County office. She's in all the other offices all the time. She's asking what we need, the holes we have to fill, the type of people we're looking for. Um, and she's really made our summer program pretty fantastic. I didn't participate in a summer program when I was in law school. I didn't really understand it. But having been in Allen Mackins now, I've seen a lot of our summers. And I can say we have a really high, like 95 to 99% hiring rate. So once our summers get in the door, we almost always keep them. So our summer program is a great opportunity for a firm like ours to have a really great experience and most of the time get hired. Um, what I find fascinating is we do all the OCI. We go do on-campus interviewing at a lot of the schools. But the last three 
out of five maybe came through personal connections. Somebody reached out because they went to Notre Dame and somebody in our firm is from Notre Dame and we brought them in. We would never go do OCI in the middle of Indiana. You know, that's not something that we're going to be capable of doing, but that's helped a tremendous amount. And our very last hire came by somebody I met five years ago and I tried to hire him and I couldn't get him in the door and we kept going back and we kept going back and he got to know many people at Allen Mackins and when we had an opening he was the only choice because he had put in the legwork and put in the time and he's the best addition to our firm. That's incredible. So let me address San Diego because I can't tell you about the rest of the firm. We have a hiring coordinator who's actually in Philadelphia who helps us go through the resumes and we get quite a few. But I would say the the biggest thing you need to have is you need to have a little gumption. You need to remember that there's nothing ventured, nothing gained, period. If you don't send your resume to us or you don't talk to me when you see me, I'm never going to know that you're looking for a position. And we can't consider you until I know. So I do completely agree that getting out in the community and, you know, meeting other people, networking appropriately and honestly, doing a really good job with the things you do in town is the best thing you can do to advance yourself to be in a position to send your resume for evaluation. So we can't ignore the gender mix in the room here. And, <laughs> and I, I, I want to ask a question that I kind of wrote out, and I want to see if I do it right. Um, all, all of you are partners in mid or large firms. You all have large, successful, growing practices. Uh, you're all partners. You also have a you all have a great deal of power and authority in your law firms. And my question is: Is are you exceptions to the rule, or are you evidence that the rules are changing in our profession? Well, the ABA just came out with this study that talked about <clears throat> how many women and how many people of color are uh, at the partnership level and the equity partnership level, and the numbers aren't good. They just aren't good. They aren't where they need to be. Um, I think you know most of the women in this room have been leaders in um, advancing women in the practice of law. Patty's the former president of Lawyers Club, mm-hmm. right? Yes. A couple of years ago, yes. I think. Um, Lawyers Club is our Women Bar Association. So I just don't think the numbers are where they need to be. So are we the exception? No. Are we the minority? Yes. And how do you get women up to those levels? We're all very passionate about it. I mean, not only prom- promoting women, but promoting people of color, people from diverse backgrounds, um, all sorts of different factors that go into your diversity that contribute to you being a unique individual. I, I think it, it it really has to come from the top down. In other words, the people who are the partners need to be out there actively advancing the careers of the associate. I loved when Heather Riley spoke about the recruiting department, how they're also the associate advancement department. That's what you need to be doing. You need to be saying, hey, we believe in you. We want you to go to the next level. We we support you. We support if you're going to have a child in the middle of your career here at Allen Matkins or Dwayne Morris or Kleindon's PC. And um, we find, especially with women, that women oftentimes need to be asked. So you have to go to the woman and say, hey, I think you'd be a good partner. I'm asking you to put in your name or I'm asking you to consider management. And a lot of women will be thrilled by that invitation, quite honestly. I was president of the San Diego County Bar, and I never thought that I was qualified for it back in 2007. And two other board members, men, um, good friends of mine, came up to me and asked me to do it. And they were the ones who broke me out of my shell, and I did it. And um, I would encourage all of us who are in leadership positions, management positions, to do the same with the young attorneys in our offices or our organizations. What are some other ways that you ladies lead by example and help uh, increase diversity in your law firms? Because that's, I love those tips right there. Those are fantastic. Are there other ways that you all do it? Well, let me ask answer the first question first, which is sure. just that I think, I really hate to say this, but I think we're the exception. And I, I wish, it is my greatest hope, it is my lifelong battle to not be the exception. I think it's so important to take advantage of the opportunities that you have, but you have to remember that not everyone, male or female, is interested in those opportunities. And we do have to keep that in mind that everyone's different. So what do I do? I think that I get involved in town, I make a real effort to help people individually. I probably have coffee with someone 
and I am, this is probably an, I'm underestimating at least three times a week where I'm talking to someone and giving them an idea and they, and they have an opportunity to ask me a question and I give them as truthful of an, an answer as I can and try to give them some direction. And I'm on the hiring committee in the San Diego office. Um, I've been involved in hiring for a long time at various firms and you know, we interview a lot of people who are diverse and women and obviously the young men as well. And we do everything we can to say, you're an, you're in this position to be hired. Now show us what you have so that we do hire you. And that's trying to make it a level playing field for people to demonstrate that they have the motivation to want to excel wherever they may be practicing law. So before I got here, I went to our recruiting department and I went to our admin and I said, okay, what are the stats? Because Alan Mikens has a lot of attorneys and I know most of them, if not by sight, really well, but I don't really know how the breakdowns worked. And it isn't something I'd thought about necessarily on a regular daily basis. But I went and looked and I found out firm-wide we have 52% female associates, but only 19% female partners. So I, I know that myself personally, because just this summer I got elected equity partner. And my first, thank you. My first email that was congratulating me was from one of my colleagues, a female equity partner, and we have 12 out of 82 are females at the equity line, so we're at 14.6. And the email I got was, "Hey, we're rounding up to 15. Let's go to the 20 from here." So it's we're working hard internally to make sure. I was on the partnership selection committee for our firm this year, and we elected. A couple of women last year was a couple more. Uh, three of the new equity partners this year are female at St. Ed Allen Mackins across the firm. And so internally, we're all working hard to make sure we're pulling the next people up behind us. Love it. Because, you know, it's it's hard to be there by yourself. Right now in San Diego, we only have three female, par four female partners. And when I was elected, I was the first one in a really long time. And so it's my goal the associates behind me, the male and female, the good ones, to make sure they make the jump. But in particular, I'm really interested in making sure the females stick around so that they can be evaluated. Because too often, I get calls from a woman in Century City in our office, and she's like, I, I can't do this. This is too hard. This is not what I want to do. And it's I feel like I have to talk them back off the ledge and bring them back into the fold and convince them that, OK, maybe partnership next year isn't the right thing. Let's take a year and figure out where you want to go. But let's put you back on the track. And it's too common that we're having those conversations, I'm afraid. So I, I agree with Patty. We still are the exception. And I would just say, Heather Riley just busted out a statistic, so I had to look I up one statistics. too. <laughs> but the ABA report that I referenced said that women make up 36% of the profession today, but they only make up 19% of equity partners. Um, and this ABA, same ABA study, talks about how the average weekly salary for female lawyers in 2018 was 17, about $1,700 a week, compared to $2,200 for men. So I think this study highlights some of the issues we're discussing. And you know what strikes me about all of your comments is a theme that we've been seeing throughout all of these podcasts, and that is the need and importance of mentorship. Because it seems to me that what you're saying is that the advancement of women in firms may not be uh, uh, best through institutional policy, but through individual mentorship and, and pulling people up into positions of power in law firms. Lawyers Club has a great mentor program that I've been involved in for a number of years. And when I was first signed up, I think I was probably the first person maybe in the history of Lawyers Club to write down land use or environmental because I had eight people, I think, the first yeah. year asked me to be their mentor. But most of the people that I have mentored in my almost 20 years in San Diego all have great jobs in town now. And I'm constantly on them to make sure they sign up and do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Because if you don't continue that bridge, we can't keep pulling people that are good people up behind ourselves. And I agree with that. I think that so much of this is an individual effort, person by person, to bring along some other person or other people to where you want them to be, where you hope they can be, where they can shine and excel and do on their own. You know, they can give back the way you've tried to give to other people. And I'm very proud of our office because we have more than half women in the San Diego office. We have an equal number of women um, partners as we do, you know, associates and male and female. And we have a fantastic diversity program. And yet, it really is still a lot of personal effort by a number of people, certainly not just me, to look for those individuals who will, who who have the right mindset to want to 
improve and be in the kind of environment we're in and know that there's support there and they don't have to be afraid of the next step. I really feel that people are afraid, and I hate to kind of go back to the Sheryl Sandberg thing, but it is a little bit of the lean in that people are afraid to make the next step. And it's not just women. They're afraid of the next step. I honestly think even though I have a ton of obligation, being a partner is easier than being an associate. Mm -hmm. An associate is brutal. I mean, there's so much effort, so much work that's being done. The hours, the responsibility, answering to other people. I have different kinds of responsibilities, but I love what I do. So can we talk about that a little bit? I think all of you at one point or another has referenced the partner track. And what is that for, what was your experience with the partner track? And what do incoming associates need to plan for if they want to get on the partner track? Well, the we have a shareholder track technically, but same same thing. Um, you know, first, as, as an associate or somebody considering entering into a law firm, don't be afraid to ask what the policies are. I've interviewed hundreds of people at this point, and I would say 10% of the newer or younger people actually ask me information about the partnership track. And I'm always surprised when they don't ask, because the minute they ask, I send them a document or we provide that information. So don't be afraid to ask and find out what it is. Um, in terms of my path to partner, my firm's very entrepreneurial, as Jim knows, and we're encouraged to get out in the community. We're encouraged to develop business. And I, I have to say, there were a bunch of great mentors in my firm who kind of forced me out of my comfort zone early on. You know, get out there, Heather, do this, develop business, meet clients. And, um, you know, I kind of took to it and it led to my path to become an equity partner. And I've been an equity partner for a good you know, more than a decade now. Um, but I will tell you, I'm not seeing other women uh, climbing the equity partner ranks. Um, even, uh, you know, even at my firm, there's there's only a few. And that's not due to a lack of encouragement. Um, I think it's just really hard to retain women generally in the profession of law. You know, I hear from a lot of women that by the time you add up what it costs for your childcare, it makes more sense to stay home. That kills me when I hear that, just kills me. And certainly at my firm, we try to do anything possible to retain women, accommodate children, accommodate maternity leave. Um, but I, I think it's it's a problem. And you know, the studies also show that more and more women are leaving a big law and the pressures of big law to go into in-house positions and government positions, which I think is good in some ways. You want women in those positions, but you need women in the big law firms as well. So I, it's, a, it's a struggle and I don't have the perfect answers, but I know podcasts like this are going to help. Excellent. <laughs> uh, can, I, can I ask, can you share how many billable hours they're supposed to bill for, for a partner track at Kleindens? Yeah, well, we keep ours low um, because we want to encourage pro bono, community, professional development. So an associate is 1850, a junior partner is 1800, an equity partner is 1750. And then, but some of the firms are at 2000, 2100. Um, but it, it, sometimes it's misleading because 2000 or 2100 may include a 100 hour pro bono credit, whereas our 1850 doesn't include that. But the billable hour, there's just no two ways about it. It sucks. <laughs> I just, nobody in their right mind likes tracking every six minutes of their time. So um, but I'll tell you one thing, you do get used to it. Um, yeah. Certainly, as I think everybody except you, Renee, you probably don't have to track your billable hours. So, you know. So I'll, tell you, you. I'll tell you, uh, I did at Thorsness when I worked there, Vince had, because he came from Higgs Fletcher. And so yes. they still had us track six minute increments. And I went out on my own and I was tracking six minute increments. And I did that for about three months before I realized, wait a second, <laughs> I don't have to do that anymore. Done. Never did again. <laughs> I will say the statistics show that the majority of, of, of people entering law school are women. It's a larger percentage than men. So there is, you know, there is hope for the future. You know, I, I have a question. I, I'm wondering how you think um, having more women in the business changes the nature and character of the business. I mean, women litigators litigate different than men and not different, not better, not worse. They're just different. And I'm curious how you think more women in what has been traditionally a male-dominated business is going to change the business. 
Well, I'm not a litigator in the traditional well, sense. It's not even litigation. It's the yeah. whole business as a whole. When I walk into a room, there are usually a couple other women in the room. And more often than not, they're the government staff members or the government attorneys that I'm dealing with. There are a lot more women on that side. Just it's fact. When I walk into a hearing, I'm very pleased to see now when I'm going into public agency hearings that the dais is much more reflective of the community that people represent. So the city of San Diego's council is majority female now. That, when I started, was not the case. Um, and I do think that my style is is my style. It's not the same as another woman necessarily, but it's certainly not the same as another man. Um, early on, I tried to, when I was doing construction defect work, emulate some of the men that I was watching and the ones I respected. I was trying to be more like them when I was walking into depositions or when I was going to hearings. And it felt like... It felt so fake to me. It felt like I was putting on a, a costume or a persona and it never felt comfortable. And I, I'm not a table pounding kind of person, but I was trying to almost do that because I thought it was the more effective way to be. And I learned really fast. It felt bad to me and I'm sure it was ineffective for my clients. So I went back to just being myself in a more you know, questioning, opening sort of way. Sometimes it's misinterpreted to my benefit because people think I'm an idiot because I'll ask a lot of questions and they tend to give me a way more information than I think they intended to give. Um, I've learned the uh, power of the pause. I think that was John Williams or Marcy, I forget. One of our former presidents used to talk about it in the county bar all the time, not speaking and letting other people fill the void. Um, and I don't know if I would have done that if I had tried to continue being like some of those male partners that were doing the construction defect litigation with me at the time. I don't think I would have been as successful because it never would have felt natural to me. Well, our San Diego office has a lot of women, and I think that has made a big difference in the practice in our office. It just is a different perspective. And I think whatever we can do from a, a, a gender and uh, ethnicity standpoint to broaden what we're like in our office to be more like what we are in our communities, the more we can do that, the better it is. I think that when we have that kind of input from a variety of, of different perspectives, it makes the entire experience better. You know, we, when it comes to looking at who we're going to hire or what kind of clients, every decision we make when there's a multitude of perspectives, I think it helps a lot. I mean, when I started practicing law, my friend uh, took this part of the deposition transcript and blew it up to this gigantic thing. And it, this man was so mad at me. He was yelling at me on the transcript. And he said, remember, you're a woman in a man's world. And he was pounding the table at the time. And my friend, a, a guy, thought it was the most hilarious thing he'd ever, of all the people to tell, to tell me this. Um, I have two brothers. I've got, you know, now I have two sons. My dad was in the military. I was surrounded by men my entire life. And it was just a very, you know, obnoxious and but sort of funny thing. And it, it motivated me. It made me think, well, you know, yeah, when I go into court, unfortunately, there are still a lot of men in court. I went down a couple of weeks ago to a just a case management conference, and I, I couldn't help myself. I was counting, like, okay, five men, six men, eight men, 10 men, and me. And then finally, another woman walked out and thought, wow, still after all this time, we have so many more men who are actually litigating. Um, does it have an impact on the cases? I think it does to some degree to have more women, but more often than not, it's me and all the men. Interesting. I would say, you know, when I joined my firm, uh, the one woman, other woman was out on maternity leave. So was me and men, the men, there were women, they were secretaries and uh, the men were great. You know, they, they're still my law partners today. Great people. But, um, you know, that's a certain vibe being the only woman in a room full of men. And now today, you know, I mean, I make it a point to hire people from all cultures and backgrounds and genders. And so we, you know, my my team, which we call the professional liability team, though we do a lot of things, including general business litigation and IP and employment, but um, it's this terrific mix of people and it makes for a more pleasant working environment. I just love all the backgrounds and um, perspectives. And I think we better serve our clients when we have all sorts of people from, you know, different genders and backgrounds and eth ethnicities. So um, I'm a big believer in it. I also, you know, I'm the former president of Change Lawyers, which is a diversity-based bar 
organization. And our big thing is that the profession of law has to mirror the population. You can't have, you know, um, only white men providing legal services when the majority of the California population is Latinx. You mm -hmm. just can't do it. People aren't going to feel that they have access to justice or our justice system. So I really believe that it's critical not only for our own personal pur purposes at our law firm, um, but but for the good of the entire citizenry and and you know body of California um, people that we diversify the profession of law. So I wanted to answer Renee's question from earlier about the path to partnership because I definitely have an anomalous path to partnership. So I was hired by Alan Mackins in 2006, and I think we had like 16 real estate associates at that time. Uh, two years later, we had five because the recession happened. So mm -hmm. people left voluntarily or were uh, encouraged to find other jobs. I had not been practicing land use for very long at that time, and there weren't that many firms that were actually looking for a land use associate in the midst of an economic and real estate recession. So I was at Allen Mackins. I had just had my first child. I actually found out while I, and this is so cliche, but I was home nursing my baby, my first kid, when my secretary at the time called and said, so do you want me to pack up your office? Oh my and gosh. And I thought, oh, are, are you moving me? Where? And no, well, the partner who had hired me left because she saw the writing on the wall and decided that it wasn't a good place for her to continue continue her practice. So I said, no, don't touch my stuff. Please leave it there. I'll be downtown in a minute. And I came downtown and I was still employed, but it was going to be a little of a treacherous time. And about six months later, the firm said to me they were making me part-time. And what that meant to them was hourly. So I lost my benefits, I lost my guaranteed salary, but I still had a job. And that was the most important thing at that point because I wasn't gonna be able to find another job in San Diego in the market at the time. So it was then incumbent on me to go find billable hours. If I wanted to get paid, I had to bill. So I spent uh, an enormous amount of time going up and down the state to all the offices, getting to know our partners and other associates and making myself invaluable to as many people as possible. I went back to taking depositions. I had to have first years teach me to make objections again because it had been so long, but I did anything I could. And I think the firm appreciated it and I, I appreciated it because it made me a much better lawyer. And after about two years, I came to them and I said, okay, I, I need to have a little bit more certainty. They hired me back on part-time. I was part-time for a number of years. Um, part-time in our office, like part-time in other offices, meant I had a lower billable hour requirement, but I also had a lower salary, obviously, and there was a little bit of a ding on salary uh, that went with your hours. After two years on that, I was able to convince them to take me back full-time. So I am the only partner at Ellen Mackins who can say I've been hourly, part-time, and full-time. So I have a very different trajectory, but I know that our firm and the recruiting department and others use me as an example, especially to young, uh, diverse, female, other candidates who may not think I'm gonna enter the partner track and go the seven years and make partner. There are lots of routes that other big firms have been supportive of uh, that aren't the traditional way to make it to where I am. It took me a lot longer um, but I have two kids who I got to see a lot more of because of that fact. It didn't matter where I was as long as I was billing, I was getting paid. So it's it's worked well for me and it means that it's not just seven years up or out. There are other ways to do it. We touched a little bit on technology. We touched a little bit on the change in the demographic of the population. We've touched on the fact that there's a lot of solos and small firms out there now. The, the law practice is changing a little bit over the years. How have you seen any of these changes affect big law, mid law, your law firms, uh, or have you? There's just changes in general. When I started at Allen Mackins, it was before the recession, obviously. And as a real estate firm, it took some... Allen Mackins started in 77 by five guys who didn't want to work for anybody else. They were deal makers in LA, and they thought they could do better on their own. And they certainly have, because they went from five to, I think we're almost up to 200 now. So it's definitely been a practice that took some time to grow. But we do real estate work in California, obviously throughout the world, but in California primarily, up and down the state. And it it's cyclical, I mean, to say it nicely. So we've changed with a lot of things. The culture has changed around us. The technology has changed around us. The practice of law has changed around us. In my particular field in land use, 
in San Diego in particular, we have very little land left. So my practice has to accommodate that. We aren't building, you know, the Carmel Valleys we used to build and the Rancho Bernardo's we used to build. So now we're doing infill development and we're worried about sustainability and we're worried about all these other things. So everything affects the practice of law, whether you're at small or at large firms. Um, things are just changing almost daily, it feels like sometimes. I mean, I, we had this conversation today that we were talking about um, when you're doing certain types of law today, I think I heard you guys talking about it with immigration, your practice could be changing daily. You know, the rules may be different tomorrow than they were <laughs> yesterday. hourly. Yeah. So <laughs> it doesn't matter whether you're at a big or a small firm, as long as you have the support and the mentorship and somebody you can call and, you know, it's, it's the, oh no, what do I do now? You have to be able to have that backup. And as long as you have a backup, whether it's a, a supportive spouse or a partner at your firm or somebody you met through the county bar or somebody you met through a mentorship program, you need that, that keep me sane person. And it doesn't matter what size firm you're at. As long as you have that person, I think we can all manage to make sure people stay successful. So I think that small firms, the, the, the difference is that small firms are now highly competitive with larger firms. And it's a lot of a price point because a small firm has lower overhead. And there are certainly uh, many clients who are very aware of that and want to hire a small firm or a solo because they can have a lower hourly rate. And so then from the big per firm perspective, we have to look at what we bring to the table, how we might be able to adjust, if that's necessary, to adjust what we're billing, um, how to find some efficiencies in what we do so that we don't have any, you know, we're very careful on what we're billing so that you end up looking not just at the hourly rate, but you're looking at the overall amount that's billed because it's a different world. I mean, it used to be that for certain kinds of transactions or certain kinds of litigation, you would never do anything but hire a big firm. And it used to be that there were predictions that the world would be filled with only mega firms. And that's simply not the case. You've got so many people now who have been in big firm life and have split off to do what originally happened with Alan Matkins, where they said, hey, you know what? No more. I'm done with this. I want to do something different, and I want to have more control of my life. And those are, again, to, to reiterate this, very, very qualified people who are competing directly with the big firms. The one challenge that we face on a daily basis that we didn't used to face along what Patty said, is that now a lot of our bigger or more sophisticated clients send their bills to a third party to scan them first for certain keywords that they will then refuse to pay. So we have to adjust pretty regularly to understand how we identify the work we are doing, the quality of it, the necessity of it, because we'll get rejections every month from certain clients because the system identified a word that is not an acceptable. The dreaded audits. Yeah. And, and those are private institutional clients? Uh, yeah, almost all their private clients that are doing it. And there's third party vendors that they send the bills to that check. It's not even generally in-house that the clients are doing it. There are other companies that do it for them. Oh, almost that's, all insurance, that's fascinating. Uh, almost every insurance company has that software. And it's it's so funny. It's like a software battle. The insurance companies and the big corporations have it. Um, these legal auditing companies allow you to run the bills through. It scans. It, it analyzes. Um, the law firms are now buying the software. I know this is a bit off topic, but the law firms are buying the software to make sure that their bills don't have those words before it goes to the insurance company. Uh. And somebody told me, I don't know if this is true, that the same company sells the software to the law firms <laughs> and the clients. But it is That's a change. A <laughs> it is, it is. I, I think that um, the Great Recession really restructured our business permanently um, in a lot of different ways. I think it's there's more competition now. I think we're more cost conscious. I think the clients are, let me say, less loyal and they're willing to jump more. I'm curious how your firms uh, have changed in the manner that they do business after the Great Recession. It's, it's a really good question. Um, I think it relates to the last question and the answers that you got. I think clients are becoming more con cost, cost conscious, more um, solution oriented, more business minded. Um, you know, it used to be, I think years ago, like you are in a legal matter. You are my, you know, I'm going to hire you as my attorney. I will agree to your hourly rate and you kind of deferred to your attorney to handle it. 
I mean, these days I see our clients asking, you know, hey, up front, day one, or even before they hire us, what's the budget? What would it cost to settle? You know, what is the right business decision? How much energy is going to go into this? What are the creative solutions? So going back to the great recession, I think when we came out of that, Jim, you know, maybe around 2010, 2011, 2012, I think we had to make our practices um you know, more in tune with our clients' business models. That's, and you and I, Jim and I used to be law partners, as Jim referenced, and we've talked a lot about this. But I, that's how I've had success developing clients is, you know, really sitting down and understanding what it is they're looking to get out of my representation. And it's always something different. Sometimes it's, try my case because I'm going to prove that I'm right. Sometimes it's get me out of this on day one. Sometimes it's I have an unlimited budget, you know, let's go for it. Sometimes it's I only have this much money and I need this done in the next month. Um, so understanding the needs of your clients listening um, is is critical in today's day and age uh, because people aren't sticking with lawyers for decades as their company lawyer anymore. It's simply not happening. And I don't think this is the first time this has happened. In my law career, there have been a number of, re of recessions, and the business changes during and after a recession. And when I started out, I did all insurance defense work. And I remember we would look at the ebb and flow of those cases. And if the economy was good, the insurance carriers would send more of that work out to the private firms. And if the economy was bad, they would keep more of it in-house and they would keep it until somebody blew a deadline in-house. And that was what always what happened. Somebody would blow a deadline and then boom, everything would start coming back to the outside lawyers again. So I don't think that reevaluation is something that was unique to what happened in our last recession. I think it's something that happens routinely. But now we really do see what Heather's described of a, a more sophisticated client, a client that is pushing back more, and they should push back to say, what am I getting for what I'm paying? And how timely is it? How responsive are you? Are you considering what I want to accomplish with the legal work that you're doing for us? Patty's entirely right. We always joke in our firm that the deal makers who started the firm, they hired land use attorneys when they needed somebody to help develop Orange County. And they hired bankruptcy attorneys the first time a recession hit. So our bankruptcy keeps us going in the recessions and our real estate keeps us going when times are good. And, you know, the receivership work gets really popular when yeah. things are bad and it sort of evens itself out, which is why a firm, our firm, a real estate firm has managed to, to survive through a couple of the cycles. But in particular, being a San Diego land use attorney throughout the last recession, the practice changed entirely. What I was doing, as I said, the big infill the big uh, greenfield projects are now the small infill projects. But at the same time, the type of work we do has changed a tremendous amount. A lot of our clients are guys who have architecture degrees or guys who have contracting degrees and are developing on the side. And it's it's a risky business to be a developer in a small town, a small big town like San Diego, because things can you know shift very quickly. But if you have money and you have something you want to build, San Diego is a good place to build since the last recession. There's a lot of opportunity in a housing crisis like we have in California right now. This is the market. You can get your projects approved. You can get over the finish line. But at the same time, we have an aging population. And a lot of that aging population are the ones who bought in the 60s, love their one story, very similar neighborhood, and don't want to put density in those places. So my practice has shifted and has now shifted again because we're lining up with um, areas of real estate that we might not have previously. The developers are you know, on the same side as the Yimbies, who are on the same side as the unions because they all want to be able to build. And that 10 years ago was not the case. And can I, can I just comment on your path to partnership? So I just want to say that I'm not sure it's ever quite linear. I, I made partner the first time when the requirement was that I practiced for, I think it was six or seven years, and I made partner in that time. But, but my boss left and went on the Superior Court. I ended up working for another person. The kind of practice I had changed. I had, we had our first child. Um, we moved. We had all kinds of things going on in our personal lives. I had, to, I had to learn how to start bringing in my own business. And that was on top of all the other requirements that were going on at the office. So 
that's as linear as it gets. And it was not linear at all. And I don't think it, it ever is. And I, I hope that people, you know, think about the fact that we all have challenges and then you have, you come to a crossroads and you have to make a decision. And Heather described what she was going through in her, you know, journey to become a partner, the part-time and, you know, the different things she did. Now, at that first juncture, Heather could have said, uh, you know what, I'm done, so done. Stick a fork in me, I am yeah, done. Yeah. And she could have left and she would not be where she is today. So don't think of adversity as something that stops you. Think of it as a way that makes you more creative. I mean, there was a recession when I was a young lawyer too. Mm-hmm. And I remember standing in my friend's office and he bought a dartboard and we were throwing darts at the office in the middle of the day. And I thought I was insulated because I was pregnant at the time. And what was I thinking? And yet we survived that. So, and by the way, it was a long time ago. Just wanna yeah. just wanna say that. But be creative. Think about ways to challenge yourself when you're faced with a roadblock. Okay, so now I'm hoping you can all take a minute to brag on your specific offices because I know you all belong to firms that have multiple offices. So what makes the San Diego office the best and most special out of your firm-wide offices? Well, we were, Kleindienst was, uh, it's a San Diego-based firm. And we actually, it's a really cool story because a lot of law firms open up their offices in other jurisdictions because they acquire other law firms or they lateral in partners. Every single one of our offices um, came from an attorney who started in San Diego and moved to open the other office because that attorney wanted to move someplace else. So it's a, as a result, it's a very family-oriented, close environment, um, pretty, pretty special. Uh, the, I suppose the downside, if you think it's a downside, is it doesn't allow crazy growth. You know, you're not going to balloon to a thousand lawyers by utilizing the model where everybody has to come from San Diego. But let me talk about San Diego for a second. I love San Diego. I find my office to be special, but this whole legal community is so special. Um, You know, you can just walk down the street here, as you all know, and you'll run into 10 people that you know. Um, The events are all within this like three or four mile radius. And, you know, every time you, you go to one, you see 20 people you know, and you're all doing the same good work um, as, um, you know, I referenced earlier with my work at the statewide level, the California Lawyers Association, the State Bar of California, Change Lawyers. I've seen a lot of lawyers from all over the um, all over the state. And I do practice in quite a few other jurisdictions. I do a lot of work in LA. And we have something pretty darn special here in San Diego. So I'm proud of our San Diego office, but I'm even more proud of our San Diego legal community. I love our San Diego office. So we have um, about, there are about 40 of us now, and it, it is a very, it's a vital environment. And we just have, it's a lot of fun. Uh, we have some good personalities. We work together. There are a variety of different practice areas. So there's litigation, which is called trial. Uh, employment, which is both the transactions and the trial aspect of that. Um, real estate, including land use. Um, corporate, intellectual property. And, and tax as well. And then we have an education practice group. So we have a, a wide variety. And yet we refer work to each other. We work together. We have our partnership meetings where we have meaningful discussions every month. We have firm-wide events. We go racing Formula One, those little Formula One cars for these summer associates. Um, you know, I, of course, make margaritas. Everyone should know that. <laughs> um, so we, we really try to infuse the environment with a lot of fun. And it's it's a wonderful opportunity to come to work and then leave at the end of the day and do the rest of life. Um, I have the managing partner of Alan Mackins in the San Diego office, and we just elected our third ever managing partner who is also in the San Diego office. So one of the key things is make sure you office where the managing partner is. That helps a great deal. <laughs> um, but I, I I'm really happy practicing and living in San Diego. I mean, I grew up in New York and I never thought I would leave. And if I did, it would have been go to DC and work in politics. And when I first got to San Diego, it was the first time I'd gone past the Mississippi. And now there's not enough money in the world to make me want to leave <laughs> this town, this legal community and, and my office, quite frankly. The people who I work with, um, I never thought I would say that I've invited them to my home 
like people have come over and, and got to spend time with me and my kids because they are friends of mine. I consider them important parts of my life. Um, and that's not something I necessarily anticipated being lucky enough to have when I practice law. But the people who live in my neighborhood, who practice with me in the office, I mean, we get to take we had two new hires last year and I hosted uh, a party at my house. We had it catered. We brought everybody over. We got to meet people's spouses. I went and mentioned it to the managing partner. He's like, sure, make sure you invite X and Y and have a great time. You know, there's there's never a lot of pushback. There's a lot of encouragement to do the fun things in the summer, but also our annual firm retreats every other year. We have one with spouses and one without. And I can tell you that the other Alan Mackins offices, I don't know if they'd admit it to you, they're jealous of San Diego because we're <laughs> oh, yeah. a lot more laid back. We don't wear suits every day. We're all going to hear this podcast, yeah, Heather. They're all going to hear it. And I don't think they're going to necessarily disagree with me in writing, you know, um, but it's, it's a nice place to practice law. And, you know, as three members, four, five members, all of whom have served on the county bar's board of directors, being a lawyer in San Diego is a great place to practice law because you get to do it in one, a beautiful location, but two, a really close-knit community. So even if you aren't downtown within two blocks of an event, when I was president and before that, we've been sending those events up to North County. We've been doing the bench bar roundtables all over the place so that we meet the other courthouses, we meet the other people. Adriana, you know, you have this access, whether it's through phone or through web, you can reach out to these resources. You don't have to be downtown. But if you are, you can come to the bar center. You can use that location to do all that sort of stuff. That's not something you get in other jurisdictions. You can't go do that in, and I can't say this, I'm not gonna name any city because I'm sure whatever I say, I'll be wrong. But you know, <laughs> it's not the same. Having gone to enough of the bar conferences, San Diego is super unique and it's we're lucky to be here. And if we can keep these great lawyers, keep them in the firms or keep them in office as general counsel, the more we have, the better off we all are. So as three very prominent, successful women lawyers here in San Diego, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. Um, my oldest daughter is a three-year lawyer here in town, and we talk all the time, and I give her advice. But, you know, as enlightened as I think I am, I'm still a man. Um, and and I'm, a dad. Yeah, and a dad, yeah. And so my advice is a little bit daughters. skewed, yeah. So if, if, if you were to sit down with my daughter – uh, three-year lawyer here in town, and you're actually speaking to a lot of young female lawyers, uh, hopefully on our podcast, what single bit of advice would you give to her or them about building a successful career as a woman lawyer in San Diego? Well, gosh, you said one thing and like five things come to I mind. So <laughs> How about three? Okay, three things. Okay, I feel much better now, Jim. Um, number one, I, I like Heather Riley's advice from before about how you went to court the first, first time and like table pounding is what you thought you were supposed to do. Uh, be yourself um, because you're never going to be anyone else. You're not going to be successful forcing yourself into a mold. Uh, number two, um, you know, everybody here is a hard worker, but you got to work hard. You know, anybody who thinks you're going to be successful in the law without some nights, weekends, hard work, tears, emotion, anxiety, um, it's just <laughs> not that you're speaking from experience. <laughs> no, no. God, no, I'm last not night. Me. Yeah. <laughs> this morning, whatever. <laughs> um, but, but it's, it's just gonna, you're gonna have to pay your dues. It's a tough profession. Uh, my dad was a lawyer for 50 years and he's like, it's the best profession in the world because he was a farmer before he became a lawyer. So apparently it's a better profession than a farmer, but, but it's a hard profession. So be prepared, um, to work hard. And then the third thing I would say, um, and your daughter is already good at this, Jim, but develop relationships. It circles back to what we discussed before. Um, you know, I've just like the other people in this room have had success at developing business. And people ask me about it. You know, is it like flashy events or gifts or, you know, <laughs> promotional brochures? It's none of those things. It is literally getting to know people, sitting down, having a, a real conversation, asking them about their lives. And you combine that, the relationship with competency and skill in your law practice, and you will have a big book of business, really, at the end of the day. So those are the three things, and thank you for letting me say three, Jim. I could, couldn't have done one. <laughs> well, I, I envy Heather uh, as going first, and I, and I, 
<laughs> and I feel bad for our other Heather because she's going to go last. <laughs> she has to be creative. So she is going to have to be creative. So I would say the, the first step is to find in, in this giant morass that is the practice of law to find what you love to do. And you can decide whether that's transactional work or you're doing real estate or you're giving ethical opinions or you're a trial lawyer or you work on the plaintiff side or the defense side, whatever it is, I could keep going for hours on the, just, just look at the sections and the committees that the county bar has. There is a wide range of, of practices. And you have to find what you really like doing because this is, this is not just a battle. This is not one year, five years, 10 years. This is a long time that you hopefully will really enjoy what you do and and mature as you get through the practice of law. It's a little like the road to Hana. You know, it's not Hana. You're not going for Hana. It's the road. It's the journey. It's what you see on the side. It's stopping for banana bread, right? <laughs> that, that lady who makes the banana bread on the side of the road and listening to Craig, what's his name, give the... Um, podcast, speaking of podcasts, on what to look at on the road. That's what it's about. You have to enjoy the journey and then, you know, get involved. I, I mean, I think that if you find other people who are like-minded in whatever interests you, that's a wonderful way to meet people. And the more people you get to know, the easier it is to make those connections and to survive, to be a survivor, to survive the practice of law and to enjoy the practice of law. And I, I think I might be at three, but my fourth is, sorry, Heather. Um, <laughs> Thank you God, Heather. have to be ethical. Okay, your, now, Heather. Your, your ethics is, but I mean, you have to be. Yes. Your yeah. ethical behavior is the number one piece of advice I can give to anyone. Your reputation is everything. And she's not just saying that because Heather Rosings in the room. Yeah. <laughs> So, well, maybe partly. <laughs> so, Heather Riley, I'm going to change the rule. You have to do five. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, it's a good thing I've had to speak to the newly um, sworn in lawyers because I've done this a couple of times. But the, the one that popped to mind first is the one that I say all the time is volunteer to bring the ice. So, when you sign up for a group or an event or anything else, say that you're going to. It's, it's a silly way of saying it, but say that you're going to come back and do something because then you have to come back. You can't just blow off the next meeting because you you know got asked to cover a deposition. Well, you're going to cover that deposition because it's your job, but you still have to go to that meeting because you volunteered to bring the ice and the drinks are going to be warm if you don't show up. So volunteer to bring the ice is always the first thing I tell people. The second one is is carry the bags. It stinks to be the person who just has to carry the bags and walk behind the more senior partners sometimes, but that's how you're gonna learn, by sitting in the side of a room, by sitting in the back of a hearing, by observing people who do what you wanna do, whether you're getting paid to be there or not. Carry the bag, show up, volunteer that time. Um, the, third, the third one that I say is, I don't get paid for my law degree. I get paid for my relationships. So meeting more people, going out and networking, not just for other lawyers and not just for other clients, but all together. I mean, some of my clients now, and I used to always laugh when people say this, I was hired on the side of a soccer field because somebody was complaining about this problem they were having with their building landlord. Well, I don't do landlord tenant work, but I have plenty of partners that do that. And I you know, just happened to mention this is what I do as I was sitting under my San Diego County Bar Association blanket, by the way, because it was cold on the side of the soccer field. And they said, oh, you, you're attorney? Yeah, and I don't do landlord tenant work, but my partner does. Two days later, we had a new client that ended up being a huge one. So like these things, they, they matter. And you have to be out there. You have to get to know people, either in my case, in government and in staff, but also just anywhere else you go. And I... I know I'm, I'm cheating now, but I think Heather's point is really valid. Get to know people. Don't just be surficial. Don't just be, you know, this is who I am an inch deep. You want to make sure that you know your clients and they know you a whole lot deeper. And it's super uncomfortable for some people. It's really hard for someone to show up at an event and not really think they're going to know anyone. Or But both the county bar, lawyers club, lots of organizations, you reach out to someone ahead of time, they have that location outside the meetings where you can go talk to someone either in membership or events, and they will then take you around and introduce you to other people so you don't walk in completely cold. There's plenty of opportunities so that you can get to meet one person, the next person. Heather will introduce you to Patty, who will introduce you to Jim. It's, it's a tight-knit legal community, which Patty's point is right too. It's for good or for ill. 
it's good to meet other people, but if you do something that you don't live up to your word, that's going to stick around forever. So there's a lot of things we can say to the young lawyers, but most important is just be good at your job. Thank you so much, ladies, for coming today and sharing your time and your wisdom with everybody, including us. Um, before we sign off today, can you each let everybody know how they can get a hold of you after the podcast? Absolutely. Uh, type Heather Rosing into Google and <laughs> you will get all my information plus my new photo. Good yeah, turn exactly. Right. Yeah, we won't go into that, but I will tell you too, I just had a new headshot taken because Ooh. the last one was like me at 25, and someone's like, that doesn't look like you anymore. So now you'll see my profile with Heather Rosing at age 48. <laughs> I wish I was 48, <laughs> but um, j yeah, just put Patty Holland back in Google and San Diego and you'll find me. You can always find me on LinkedIn as well. And I would love to have you reach out to connect with me. I will promise that I'll accept your request. Uh, Heather Riley is an extremely common name. So if you search for Google, you might not find me right away. Um, but at Alan Mackins, there's only one Heather Riley, although there is a Deb Riley who for a while sat next to me, which was super complicated. So Heather Riley at AlanMackins.com. Uh, it's actually H Riley at AlanMackins.com. My number is 619-235-1564 at the office. Um, if you reach out to me, I will make sure that we get in touch. And if I can't put you in touch with the right people, someone else can. So take the shot, ask the questions, reach out for help, and there's lots of people here. Well said. So before we started this, I, I commented that we're, we had a room full of talkers here, and probably put a better way, a, a room full of very good conversationalists, and I think that that's the case. You're all my friends. I, I treasure this time we've had together, and I think we could sit here and talk for hours, frankly. And uh, so thank you all for coming. We've satisfied our meet and confer requirement, and we leave you with the San Diego County Bar mission statement. Inclusion and community define us. Innovation and leadership propel us. Your growth motivates us. Celebrating you and the profession is us. Thank you for joining us as we talk today about mid and big law and professional growth. We'll see you next time on Meet and Confer. <laughs>